0: everybody gets a kitten a new one every single day everybody gets a kitten
1: you can name if you want or you can give it away oh geez oh
2: my gosh You're listening to Aw Jeez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio.
1: We are here to provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show named after a city in North Dakota.
2: We're also here to go, what? About episodes like last night. I'm Tracy Mumford. I work for
1: Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current. And I think this was this season's UFO episode.
2: Oh, yeah. That's a good analogy. It was, uh, I'm going to say it's my favorite episode so far just because it kind of went off the rails of reality.
1: I might I might still like the LA episode best Ooh. overall, but polarizing one
2: of choice! our polarizing favorite people choice. from
1: the LA episode does uh, make a wonderful return what the in this episode. Okay.
2: All right. Let's just start at the beginning because okay. things go totally nuts. Um, we actually get a little bit of a flashback. We get to understand how exactly Yuri and Mimo managed to sabotage the prison transport van. And the answer is that they brought along their own little homemade ramp, you know?
1: Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that maybe the behavior we saw from that bus was not entirely normal for a bus just driving off the road. It had some help.
2: It had some help. And they obviously had a ramp with them like you do. And so then they are all putting on these animal masks. So we ha- we know Yuri is the wolf. Um, Mimo is a goat of some kind. And then our unnamed henchman who we met last episode when he tried to kill Nikki in the prison room in the prison cell, uh, he is the pig.
1: Yeah, so now we establish that the DJ Quall's played hench person is in fact in with mimo and yuri and vm varga and he is helping them to break into this bus and uh boy it's a it's, it's a rough episode for dj qualls he uh <laughs> he was he's new to the show and uh turns out I've had only a short window on the show
2: yeah well we should give him a name since he didn't have a name um should we just call him the pig pig boy like, pig boy okay pig boy <laughs> yuri mimo and pig boy break onto the prison transport van And we get this from the perspective of Mr. Wrench, who, if you remember, is deaf. So we get it in silence. And this is one of those fascinating tricks that Fargo likes to throw at us when they do something from the perspective of one character. He's watching in silence, and we realize that he is coincidentally shackled to Nikki, which... Mr. Wrench is probably your best bet for someone to be shackled to in a situation like this.
1: It turns out it's quiet because we're seeing it through Mr. Wrench's perspective but uh, there, I think back to that scene where Yuri was going to go break into the police office and asks VM okay, quiet or loud? And that case was quiet but obviously Mimo and Yuri have a loud mode and this is certainly the loud mode overturning a bus slaying the guards cutting their way into the part of the bus where all the prisoners are sitting and uh Mr. Wrench wastes no time beating the crap out of Pig Boy.
2: That's true. And then they escape out of the back of the bus. There's a reason to always sit in the back of the bus. Not just because it's cool, but because then you're near the exit for, you know, when your prison transport van tips over. So Nikki and Mr. Wrench escape shackled together into the woods and meanwhile an innocent little minivan drives past this insane scene they see an overturned prison bus and three guys in animal masks um, while Fala la la is playing on the radio I felt for them in this moment.
1: Yeah. So we get references here to two different Coen Brothers movies. Maybe it's a little much to say that being shackled together and trying to escape is a reference to Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But yeah, I think that's fair. Maybe a little echo there. And then a very explicit echo of the movie where you have these innocent bystanders basically, were by drivers driving by and seeing a scene that they weren't meant to see and then getting pursued down the road yeah. by the evildoers.
2: Right, and uh, some off-screen dispatching happens with our unnamed minivan couple.
1: So, Nikki and Mr. Wrench out in the wilds of northern Minnesota or central north central Minnesota
2: which begins this like days long epic trek through the woods while they're being pursued I mean the sun comes up it goes down a lot of time is passing they're in the woods I was getting these really strong like fairy tale vibes of what this chase in the woods is happening um she's in her furs he's in his leather coat like they are very much Animals, and they're being literally pursued by people who've been wearing animal masks. It's this whole like hunt through the woods thing.
1: Yeah, and Yuri learns what happens when you walk around in northern Minnesota woods wearing a wolf head. You get shot in it.
2: That's true, but he's quick. He's fast.
1: Yes, so this father-son duo out doing a little uh, bow hunting or crossbow hunting. They have pretty slick, you know, if you're going to be bow hunting, this this is the way to do it, if you ask me. They nail Yuri in the wolf head. The wolf head gets stuck to a tree, and this father and son come running up excited about having nailed this wolf. But no, it was Yuri who is now behind them, and we don't see what happens, but we shortly see... Yuri and Pig Boy with their bows.
2: Again, some more off-screen dispatching.
1: It took a while for the body count to start climbing in this season. And I don't know if we can even say exactly how high it is, but uh it is certainly being upped by several in this episode. That's
2: true. So Nikki and Mr. Wrench are continuing to slog through the snow and the woods. Uh, they can't communicate because Nikki doesn't know sign language. She realizes that she is in fact chained to a deaf man. He writes in the snow, like, are they after you? About the people who are pursuing them. <laughs> and she just writes, sorry. <laughs> so, but Mr. Wrench, he's a good sport about it. And they stumble upon the scene that could not scream trap. Any louder, uh, there's a body strung up with a bag over his head with little X's drawn on it. Who is that? I I assume it was the owner of the axe. Um, The axe is then buried in the stump. And again, it's like the light is falling directly on the stump with the axe. Uh, It's a trap. It's obviously a trap.
1: Oh, you were looking for a convenient situation for unshackling yourselves from one another? such as perhaps a stump and an axe. Yeah, with... don't
2: mind the dead body. Just head on into this unprotected grove.
1: Yeah, so it's a shooting gallery. They're whacking away at the chain and they start taking arrows from Yuri and Pig Boy. So
2: yeah, we get the Fargo specialty, which is blood in the snow. Um, both Mr. Wrench and Nikki take a couple shots from the crossbow. Nikki through the leg. She's bleeding everywhere. And uh, Mr. Wrench at one point gets a hold of the axe. And throws it into the woods, and you hear this very resounding thunk, but you don't know what happened. Meanwhile, Pig Boy comes out, and they're tussling, and they're fighting, and uh, they manage to get the chain around Pig Boy's neck, and they both pull real hard.
1: Uh, Shout out to the Foley artist in this scene. It was very dark. It was a little bit hard to tell what was happening, but uh, you could hear pretty clearly what um what was going on there and it was not a pleasant end for Mr. Pig.
2: Well and they they toy with you a little bit, right? You look at him for a second like, what's wrong with the is it gonna Oh, it's gonna roll. There it's it gonna goes. roll. There
1: yeah. it goes. Little little sucking sound and mm, that is that the is the end off. of Mr. Pig. Um and Yuri is uh, presumably injured off somewhere
2: Well they the axe sliced his ear off.
0: We do see, see that at the his end of this ear scene.
2: laying in the snow. Uh, this reminded me of season two where um the Gerhardts are actually torturing a guy and they're yelling at him and they're like, Why are you talking to us? And they're like, Well, you cut his ears off. So missing an ear on Fargo is, is a thing that can happen.
1: So now Nikki and um Mr. Wrench finally manage to they've they've managed to do like enough damage with the with the axe that they can now unshackle themselves but from m- one another.
2: Mr. Wrench is such a loyal guy. That even once they get unshackled, he picks her back up and helps her start walking to the woods. It's not like he just stuck with her because they were chained together. He really sticks with her.
1: This is a redemption arc for Mr. Wrench, for sure. And where do they find themselves? Uh, what I put in my notes is the bowling alley at the end of the universe.
2: <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Also, like, hello, Big Lebowski, we see this happening. Yep, gotcha. Gotcha. And they stumble into this bowling alley. Uh, Nikki tries to make herself as presentable as she can be. You know, she tucks the remaining chain down her fur coat um, to go and talk to the the guy manning the bowling alley, who asks if she wants shoes. You know, she she looks like she's ready to bowl.
1: All she wants is a double whiskey and one for her friend. And he doesn't even make her start a tab; just puts the drink down.
2: Okay, which is when things get. Crazy.
1: So we pan over and it turns out that Nikki has a drinking partner and her drinking partner is Ray Wise, the actor who we saw in the episode when Gloria went to Los Angeles and he was with her on the plane. Then he was with her again at the bar. And now here he is in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota at this bowling alley having just this much sherry.
2: I'm going to say also having the weirdest conversation that we've ever seen on Fargo. And we've seen a lot of weird conversations.
1: He has a lot to say, and it is dense with symbolism and references to the Bible, to other Coen Brothers movies. He's talking about the Book of Job, which is, you know, which you could see as a reference to the movie A Serious Man, which is basically based on the Book of Job.
2: Yeah, there's this weird line. uh, The Ray Wise character says, have you been here before? And Nikki says, the bowling alley? And he says, is that what you see? So what is this like purgatory or limbo or this weird thing? And he knows all about her, which she does not question, even for a second. And he pulls a kitten out of the box. What is happening, Jay? He pulls this kitten out of the box and he hands it to her and says that this is Ray.
1: He says, Ray is the cat. <laughs> She's like, What? He's like, Well, that's just the name that came to me when when I saw this character. I
2: mean, she kinda rolls with it and he has this theory about how souls can return to bodies, but some can't return to bodies and they're lost souls. And he starts talking about um the people who were slaughtered in the Ukraine and is talking about the rabbi's reaction to seeing this mass grave. I mean, He's going all over the place into this hugely spiritual theory. Yeah. And
1: we're, we're going to come back to this in just a few minutes because he's talking about Jewish victims of the massacre of Yuman in 1768 killed by, that's right, Cossacks. And he says, you know, I think I think they might be lost souls. This is all while Nikki is playing with, uh, with the cat, Ray the cat.
2: He tells her that she is going to move on from this and he's going to spare her because he needs her to deliver a message when it's time. And he also says that her new friend, Mr. Wrench, is also going to move on. And they weren't so sure initially if he was going to move on, but they've made, they've decided that, you know, maybe, yes, he can do that now. So it really, for Mr. Wrench, literally is a redemption story.
1: They're going to take a stand against evildoers. And so, yeah, the message that he gives For her to deliver is actually a Bible quote. It's a quote from Obadiah about those who build high like the eagle, set their nests among the stars, and yet the Lord will bring them down.
2: I don't know. He's like saving them from limbo to take on Varga. And he's given them like a green Volkswagen Beetle to do it in.
1: Have we seen this car before?
2: I mean, he said that the car's sins had been absolved.
1: That's what I'm saying. Has this been in like another Cohen Brothers thing? Know, Was this in an I, earlier season of Fargo? I mean,
2: literally Googled sinful Volkswagen Beetle and I did oh. not come up with anything relevant to the show. So I don't want to know what you did find. Are we missing something big, listeners? Like, what, what is this car from? Um, maybe we have totally missed it, but I do not know.
1: So Nikki is now going to leave the bowling alley, but she has to leave the kit behind with Ray Wise, and she has a touching little request for him. She's like, you know, listen, when the gophers are on, just put them by the TV and give him a little bowl of beer.
2: You know what's super weird is I actually have a cat named Raymond, and I was like, what? My cat's in Fargo.
1: Have you noticed it sort of like sitting in the stairwell with the light shining down on it from it's the like side maybe door? maybe
2: Ray Stussy is my cat. Personal theory. So... Nikki collects Mr. Wrench and they're going to head out and get into their no longer sinful green beetle. And just as they leave the bowling alley, Yuri arrives at it. He is bloodied, beaten. He's missing an ear. He sidles up to the same bar that Nikki was at. He orders napkins. I don't think napkins are going to do it at this point. And some vodka.
1: Yes. <laughs> I thought he was maybe going to pour the vodka on his wounds, but no, he just he just drinks it and is great, greeted by Ray Wise, who, by the way, is being very Twin Peaks in this episode. Ray Wise, most famous perhaps from being Leland Palmer in Twin Peaks, is very at home in this kind of a surreal situation, and he greets Yuri as... Cossack of the Plains, Grandchild of the Wolves Hundred. And uh, Ray Wise has a message to pass on to Yuri from Helga Albrecht and the Rabbi Nochtman and all those slain Jews. Oh,
2: we should talk about this. We totally skipped this. OK, so there's this weird moment earlier when Yuri and Pig Boy, for lack of a better name for him, are out hunting in the woods. And Yuri sees that Pig Boy has the name Helga tattooed on his wrist. And he says out of nowhere, Yuri says this, I knew a Helga once. She did nothing but talk, talk, talk. So this is confirmation that our Yuri here is the Yuri that was supposed to be in the Berlin interrogation room when the episode opened, because that inspector, if you remember, was not just looking for a Yuri. He was looking for a Yuri in connection to the murder of Helga Albrecht. So this is our moment where it really gets tied together. And then it comes up again when Ray Wise is talking with Yuri at the bowling alley slash purgatory um, and says, yeah, exactly. Helga has a message for you, as do all of these slain people who died in Ukraine. And we get this bizarre black and white shot of all of them
1: looking understandably not happy, and you're left wondering, oh, is this the last we're going to see of Yuri? Depends well, it is on, for this episode. Depends <laughs>
2: on if it's a real bowling alley or not. Like, what was this? Like, this was trippy. I kept thinking, like, maybe Nikki is passed out in the woods and she's hallucinating all of this. Like,
1: I imagine the two of us, Tracy, you know, getting to this this way station at the end of the world and there's Ray Wise sitting there and we're like, what are we doing in this public radio recording studio? And he'd be like, oh... Is that what you see?
2: (laughs) No. Anyways, if anyone has any theories on what exactly we saw related to Ray Wise and the bowling alley, please enlighten us because that was some strange metaphysical uh, tangents that we took last night.
1: Yes. And better or worse than the aliens.
2: Oh, tough call.
1: By whatever criteria you want to judge, better or worse. Mm -hmm. How'd you like it? Let us know.
2: Interesting. Okay. So... From the bowling alley, we move to this Christmas scene with Gloria. Um, It's Christmas morning. She's with her ex-husband, or not quite ex-husband, actually, and his new partner and their son, who is opening socks for Christmas.
1: And Gloria is in deer horns, which is a little ominous given all the taxidermy we've seen in this season and the big hunting scene we just came from. I saw Gloria in those reindeer horns, and I was like, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Please. I didn't know. even think
2: about that. But Christmas gets interrupted. Um, She gets a call, and she just says, "Ah, jeez."
1: Oh, we got a that was a really good ah, yeah. jeez. I she's, applauded. She's
2: definitely talking about the podcast for sure. So she heads back on patrol, and she's called to the scene of the overturned minivan. We do get our final shot of that unsuspecting couple whose Christmas carols were interrupted.
1: Execution style.
2: Yep. And then also she goes to the prison transport van. It's been overturned. And there's a bunch of federal marshals on the scene. We get this rehashing of the scene where, like, these men in control just don't want to listen to Gloria, even though she's asking if Nikki is on the bus.
1: Does that patch on your jacket? Does that say U.S. Marshal? No, it does not.
2: So Nikki's not on the bus. They at least tell her that much. And they tell her that they'll let her know either way if they find her dead or alive.
1: Meanwhile, back to Sai. So Cy comes knocking for Emmett because they have a meeting to give a statement to police. Who answers Emmett's door but Mimo, who promptly slams the door right back in Cy's face.
2: Cy keeps knocking, though, and then Varga shows up. He's eating his chicken wing. Mimo is, like, dancing in the lobby of this house. It's interesting to see the house so different than when we first saw it in the first episode where it was packed with people and it was an anniversary party and everyone was happy and filling the house. And now it's just like this strange clubhouse of henchmen.
1: It's essentially the Memo dance studio.
2: It's true. But sai um, is invited in by Varga. They head into the kitchen. They have him take a seat. Varga's like, hey, you're $5 million richer. And that's only bonus like two out of three. Sai's um, still not really buying it. And they offer him a cup of tea. And what in the what? Why, if you were Sai, would you ever drink anything from Varga again after the mug incident? Was that not a clear enough message to you that he means you malice in the form of beverages? Like, why would he drink this tea?
1: Sai endlessly, endlessly trusting
2: because in the last one when he drank the tea or tea i'm doing air quotes yeah, yeah, yeah. he did it because mimo was standing there with his gun and then this one there's no such overt threat but he drinks it anyway even though he's like oh it tastes a little bitter
1: maybe he thinks if he drinks the tea you won't have to eat that gross looking pile of thanksgiving food that varga's been binging on so yeah so he drinks the tea which uh, as varga explains is his mom's recipe Varga explains, hey, listen, that statement of the cops, it's been taken care of. So we get further hints that Varga has his hands into the St. Cloud uh, local and county authorities. Statement to the cops is not going to be necessary. And Cy heads off and sees Emmett standing by the window.
2: He doesn't even wave.
1: No, no.
2: Emmett, what the heck? So Cy, by the time he gets to the Stussy Lots office, is obviously not feeling well. He staggers out of the elevator. The receptionist can tell something's wrong. He loses his lunch all over the front lobby and collapses. And we get this kind of montage of him being ushered into the hospital. They're bagging him. They're trying to revive him. They're cutting his clothes off. And it flashes forward. His beard grows in. His mustache grows. Time is passing. And we realize Sai has been in a coma for three months.
1: Toxic shock.
2: From the T? Well, they don't know. They're not sure. The, not the sure. authorities
1: don't know. So, all right. So I kind of want to talk about this. So Sai is in the coma. Emmett is by his bedside, paying his respects to his his incapacitated friend. Emmett walks out of the hospital room, and there are Winnie and Gloria still asking the same kinds of questions about this case, which is still ongoing, and we are given to understand that the authorities have essentially made no progress on this case whatsoever between Christmas and mid-March. So if you think about like everything that was going on before Psy got into a coma, even Damek was ready to talk to Nikki, and then the thing with the syringe, then the bus accident, after which Nikki goes missing, and then Psy drops into a mysterious toxic coma. Meanwhile, Stussy lost, buying up a lot of new property, taking on debt, paying unprecedentedly large bonuses with a new partner who refuses to identify himself. The IRS are investigating Emmett's Life, still gone. His entire social life is disrupted. How are the cops still not on to VM Varga?
2: It just really doesn't reflect well on the fictional St. Cloud Police Department.
1: This one was that was a lot for me to swallow. That three and a half months have passed by All of these extremely shady activities have happened in the greater Stussy orbit. And still, Gloria and Winnie are left with suppositions.
2: And they're just having to pursue it on their lunch break. And you get the idea that they just pretty much follow Emmett everywhere he goes, any chance they get.
1: Yeah. Um, And it turns out someone else is following Emmett.
2: Are they? What is happening with Emmett?
1: So the cops follow Emmett to the parking ramp, as we call it in Minnesota. I know not everybody calls them ramps but they they are and it gets to the top of the parking ramp and finds not his car but ray's corvette
2: he's freaked out to see it there he backs away he takes a cab to work when he gets to work all of his very beloved pictures of parking lots that have formerly decorated the office have been uh exchanged for giant blow-ups of the stamp The two-cent Prometheus stamp is now everywhere, all over the office. And Emmett is not hallucinating. He calls his receptionist in. She sees the same thing. She's not sure how it happened. She thinks maybe Varga did it. Um, And he's thinking, like, Ray is back from the dead to haunt him.
1: Yeah. So he calls the only person he can call at this point, Varga, and says, yeah, someone's messing with me. Varga is pretty untroubled.
2: Yeah, he says um if the girl meaning Nikki is still alive then she probably ran away to Canada, which haha, we know you filmed this in Canada. Got yeah. your joke. Got Stop
1: worrying. Emmett points out, we, we learned that Yuri never came back from the woods.
2: Emmett confesses to Varga that he went to the hospital to see Psy, which Varga does seem a little perturbed about. And he tells him, like, just calm down. Go home. Mimo's going to come over and have you sign some papers. Um, you're selling a shopping mall. Back at the Eden Prairie home, Mimo is keeping guard over an Emmett who's obviously getting really close to losing it he seems to be having visions of his brother ray he's drinking a lot um and he goes into the bathroom and relieves himself and looking down into the toilet he maybe sees something on his face and he rushes to the mirror he looks in the mirror and he has a mustache he has ray's mustache on his
1: face someone has applied a mustache To Emmett's face, so of course he goes right down to Varga, and there's a line that Varga gave Emmett in the phone conversation. I thought was significant. Varga is really trying to. It feels like he's like brought Emmett so far towards seeing the world in the way that Varga sees it, but just isn't quite there yet. Emmett won't quite come all the way into the trailer, so to speak. And VM says, "Listen, Emmett, you won life." Right? like, Be happy. Quit thinking about Sai. Quit worrying about your brother and his girlfriend. Just enjoy your riches. Your family's rich. You don't really need to do anything. Just please be done and stop sticking your nose where it's going to cause us trouble.
2: Except someone literally glued a mustache on his face. So yes. there's definitely something happening here. Varga rushes over. He confers with Mimo. He's like, Mimo, you were here the whole time and you didn't see anyone do this? He's like, Nope. Um, And Emmett really is just losing at this point. He starts going on this rant about how he treated Ray when he was alive. And we get this moment where he says, um, an older brother taking advantage of a younger brother. So he admits in this moment that he took advantage of Ray when he took the stamp and he gave Ray the Corvette. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we have not heard all season so far, you know. Emmett wanted to play it as, oh, we each pick something and you made your choice and whatever. And he's actually fessing up to having swindled Ray at this point. And maybe some of Ray's anger and rage was earned.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the music that we're hearing in this scene, first as uh, Emmett is waking up and discovering the mustache. And then as he falls off to sleep under the influence of a pill given to him by Varga, we hear music from the opera Faust by the French composer Gounod. Anyway. The opera Faust.
2: He doesn't take the pill, though.
1: He doesn't actually take the pill. He, he seems have to have. He pill. falls asleep.
2: He's on to Varga's games at this point. And Mimo like throws him unconscious on the bed. He takes his shoes off. And the minute mimo is gone, Emmett opens his hand, revealing the pills that are still there. And his eyes open. And you know that he's making plans. Yep. Gloria is no longer chief. Now she's just a deputy. She's serving a lot of eviction notices. And she's debating whether or not to sign her divorce papers. She finally kind of takes a deep breath, realizes she needs to move on. She's signed. Them. Right as she does, Emmett walks into the police station behind her and says, "My name's Emmett Stussy. I want to confess."
1: Dum dum dum. Da-da-da. So now it's going to be the world versus Varga, seemingly.
2: Is Nikki back? And Nikki and Mister Wrench are pulling these tricks on Emmett. Has Mimo gone rogue?
1: I don't think Mimo's gone rogue.
2: I don't know if if you follow the Peter and the Wolf analogy. The henchmen don't align with the wolf in the end.
1: That is a good observation.
2: It's a possibility. Anything's a possibility. Raise a ghost. In a world where a bowling alley is some sort of weird limbo, there could be ghosts. I've had ghost theories (laughs) all along in this season, so I guess I just keep bringing them up.
1: Anything could happen. I, I am going to believe that the forces arrayed against Varga are one way or another going to bring him down.
2: We only have two episodes left.
1: What's going to happen? There's
2: a lot of loose ends to tie up.
1: So while we wait for the next episode, uh, we are fortunate to have a chance to talk to Jeff Russo, who's the composer who's written the music you hear in all three seasons of the TV show Fargo. And he had some fascinating insights to share with us. So we're here with Jeff Russo, composer who's worked on all three seasons of the TV show Fargo. Thanks for taking time to talk with us, Jeff.
0: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So you've now worked with Noah Hawley on several shows.
0: All the ones that he's created, I've I've worked with him on, yeah.
1: So what do you think it is about your creative partnership that works so well?
0: We have a um, communication line that's just pretty easy to deal with. You know, I understand him and he understands me. So when he wants something, it's very easy for him to sort of explain it to me and for me to understand it. And I think that is a that's a big, big plus when a composer works with a filmmaker, you know, having the filmmaker be able to explain what they want in a way that is very understandable by the composer, whatever that means. And I think our communication is just really, really easy. That's what I think makes the um, that collaboration work so well.
2: Well, speaking of collaboration, uh, we actually talked to Maggie Phillips last week, and she told us that the two of you work really closely together on coordinating songs and coordinating the score. Is that typical when you're working on shows?
0: Well, you know, I think it really all depends. You know, Fargo does utilize a lot of songs, Um, and score, and both are extremely important to the narrative. So the thing that Maggie and I work together on is figuring out, like, okay, so there's going to be a song here, and there is going to be score either before it or after it. How do I manage to make that work? Um, So I make sure that I know what she's thinking in terms of songs or what Noah's thinking in terms of songs. Um, And then I have to try to figure out how to manage that. So in that way, we, we are in sort of constant contact because songs are changing at the very last minute um things change as the cut changes so we just sort of stay in constant contact with each other talking about that stuff.
1: So I know this is a subject you've addressed in interviews for earlier seasons of the show, but I wonder if we could revisit it now that we're three seasons in. So the inspiration you took from Carter Burwell's original score, could you walk us quickly through how you sort of went from the film score to your spin on it for the TV show and how that's evolved over the seasons?
0: Well, you know, originally, I wouldn't say there was inspiration from it. I would say that the feeling that was built by him and the Coens for the for the movie was something that we needed to continue, um, and at the same time create a unique identity for our our version of that and our, our show. So, the instrumentation in that first season was somewhat similar. You know, I I used sleigh bells, which he used in the in the original score. Um And you know, big string section and 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 wins and and that's about where that sort of stopped and then it was about trying to figure out what the melodic and thematic ideals uh, ideals were for our show versus the movie that really ended in season one because season two's score was significantly different in tone just in in terms of how I was approaching the characters in season two and then the same in season three. Um, So once I sort of figured out how to manage the tone, the musical tone, and and how that affected the tone of the show, um, I sort of left the music of the movie behind and sort of went off on our own sort of thing.
2: So you've talked from the beginning about how you reached for a European, particularly Eastern European, palette for Fargo. And this season, the third season, Russian music is key to the entire show. How do you reflect that in your score?
0: Well, so, yes, in the first season, it was sort of an Eastern European feeling, not that Russia isn't Eastern Europe, because it is sort of Eastern Europe, but there's, you know, there are pockets of, of musical identities for each of these um, areas. And, and in season one, it was definitely that sort of more lush and big um, Eastern European sound. In the second season, there was more of a German component to it, which was a lot more angular. And in this one, it is more Russian. And, you know, it's really just sort of a melodic inspiration and it isn't really it didn't really change much in the way of the instrumentation um, I think that in this season I added a lot more in the way of brass um, and that that was definitely a nod to some of the classical Russian composers but other than that it was re- it's really just more of a feeling that you get when listening to certain Russian composers versus German composers versus you know other any other type of composer.
1: Yeah, it seems that the the Peter and the wolf instrumentation and the parallels there maybe don't correspond quite as literally as they do in that one particular episode with a specific Prokofiev excerpts, but it does seem that you have the horns for Varga consistently, strings for Gloria, woodwinds for the Stussy brothers. Was that a touchstone from the beginning, Peter and the wolf?
0: Yes. So I wouldn't say that Peter and the Wolf was a touchstone from the beginning, because you know, I think episode four, there was always the plan to use the Peter and the Wolf idea for for episode four. But I thought it was a good idea to sort of expand that and have a, you know, I I do like to write that way in terms of character character sounds and character instruments. Um, I think that I went a little overboard with it in season three, meaning that like, I definitely had the strings playing for Gloria and the horns playing for Varga. Um, but it is a little bit sort of like all over the map. And I do like to sort of um, represent uh, characters with specific either motifs or instruments. And I, I did sort of do that in general with the idea that in four, the Peter and the Wolf thing would come to full fruition.
1: So you sort of have a Minnesota murderer's guide to the orchestra.
0: (laughs) Exactly.
2: In general, the score to Fargo, I mean, it's, it's really amazing. It's also understated to the point that when it does kind of surge to the forefront, it makes a huge impact. Is there a moment from the season where you felt like Noah Hawley really wanted a punch from your score and you had to figure out how to deliver it?
0: Well, there're a number of places where that happened um at the end of episode 6 uh when Gloria's dry I, I I don't want to spoil or you know spoil it for anybody, but at the end of episode 6 Gloria makes uh makes a decision and there's that moment that things sort of shift and there needed to be a big sort of score moment and I would say there there's a couple of places in 9, a couple of places in 10 Um, there's something that happens in episode seven, which is coming up this week where there's a big shift in, in something where we needed to do something. So I, I think that we do pick and choose our moments. You know, one of the things we always talk about when we talk about score for the show, um, is we never want to play score until we've earned it emotionally and or narratively. Um, and score is only worth as much as the, the silence that comes before it or that comes after it. Uh, So it is really important to us to use score very judiciously and, and when we use score to have it really, really be meaningful. So there are moments that we talk about like that. And, and, you know, I just have to sort of rise to it.
2: What I think is so interesting is uh, with Fargo, it's obviously this darkly comic show. So you're scoring moments of intense tragedy and pain, but also, Uh, with this light kind of jabbing humor. How do you navigate that?
0: Well, you know, nine times out of ten, we try not to play funny. You know, we don't want to play. We can play light, and we can play not ominous. Um, But we we don't really ever want to try to play into the humor. What we try to do is we try to play one side only. Um, And when that shifts to something comedic, usually the score comes out and then it allows the funny to be funny on its own. Because if it's not funny on its own, then it's not going to be any funnier with score. The score helps to tell somebody that this is supposed to be funny. (laughs) Um, But we we don't really like to do that. So the way to really truly play this sort of dark comedic humor is to play the drama and not play the comedy.
1: So we know if the score isn't warning us that something ominous is happening, we sort of have permission to have a chuckle.
0: Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like the permission is in the music not being there, perhaps. Is
2: there something that you did in episodes one or two that you feel like people didn't catch that you thought was like, this is this brilliant moment, and maybe it didn't get the scoring appreciation that it should have? The simple
0: answer to your question is no. I mean, I, I sort of do what I do for the greater good, you know, and it's really about what the entire show is about, not about just the score or just the story or just this or just that. Um, So I wouldn't say that there's anything that I think was missed. I think that if the story came across, then everybody's done their job right. Um, And I think that, you know, one of my favorite things that I've done this season um, aside from writing the new themes is reimagining the sort of main theme for the show with a choir, um, which the entire show starts out with after our after our German friend gets arrested.
1: Thank you so much for telling us about uh, your work on the season and previous seasons. We will certainly look forward to seeing the rest of the episodes and uh, hearing the rest of your work.
0: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
1: Aw is produced by Tracy Mumford, Anna Reed, and Jake Engler.
2: Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records.
1: That song you heard at the very beginning of the episode was the song Everybody Gets a Kitten by Minnesota musician Jeremy Messersmith from his new album 11 Obscenely Optimistic Songs for Ukulele. After we saw this episode, we knew we had to ask Jeremy if we could put that song in the episode. So thanks, Jeremy.
2: If you haven't already, go ahead and take the time and rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Okay, then. Bye now.